Well, uh, welcome to 242 Church. Uh, the course that we're starting tonight is called How to Study Your Bible. And if you think about it, this is about as foundational as it gets out of all the things we, should, we could possibly teach in the life of a church. How to Study Your Bible is pretty important. It is probably my favorite subject. It's not necessarily the most titillating subject, but it's my favorite subject because of its foundational nature. If you don't know how to study the Bible, you're always going to be stunted in your Christian walk, or you're just going to have to take my word for it. And that might be a little dangerous at times. So this course is um, a course in what we call hermeneutics. That's the fancy theological word for the art and science of biblical interpretation. This is an introductory course. There are certain subjects that we will touch on in this course that we could teach an entire graduate level course on. So it is an introduction and an introduction only, but my hope is that this will uh, whet your appetite to uh, become a more competent student of Scripture. So we will not be so much studying Scripture, but we will be trying to figure out how to study Scripture in this course. And there will be a couple of assignments that you'll have. Sorry that will uh, force you to put this into practice. Now, there's also some quizzes. Now, you will not get a grade. Well, Jesus will give you a grade, but I won't. Um, there's, no, there's no possibility of failure, at least in the class. Jesus might fail you. But, but I, was, I wasn't originally going to give homework, but then I thought, um, this, is a, this is a methods course, so if you don't put some of it into practice, you won't remember it. So I, I want you to do these assignments and any other assignments that you feel would be helpful to your learning uh, process. So here's our objectives. We want you to learn the proper hermeneutical process to do study from the English Bible, obviously. Uh, we are going to learn the importance of context in biblical study, studying the Bible in its context. This is absolutely critical. Third, I want to help you to start to read the Bible, if you don't already, as according to its genre of literature. We will discuss what that means. But rather than reading the Bible flat, I'd like you to learn to read each book of the Bible in light of its literary genre or its style of literature. This is extremely important. Fourth, I would like you to be able to carry out your own word study and phrase study from the English Bible. So if you're looking at a word and you're like, what does that word mean? Instead of just running to someone's dictionary, I'd like to teach you a method that will help you to study the word for yourself. And then I want you to become familiar with the major schools of thought in Bible translation and in the selection of a version of the Bible, because most of us are spending our time working from the English Bible. Okay, Dave here, he's into the Spanish Bible for some reason, but most of us are working with a translation, correct? So if we're working from a translation, then we need to sort of be discriminant in the translations we use. So you need to be here. If you don't come to at least 80% of the classes, you will suffer. Not from me, but from Jesus. And um, as for the textbook, I'll write it on the board. I would like you to order it. You don't have to. You're not going to be quizzed on it. But if you want to build your library, I would recommend that you order a book called How to Read the Bible... 
for all it's worth. Uh, it is in its fourth uh, printing, so you're going to be getting the fourth edition. I have the second edition in my hand. The authors are Fee and Stewart, and they do a really great job giving uh, Christian people a primer in biblical interpretation. So that's the book. If you want to thumb through it tonight, you can. But this is my copy. So there's the course schedule. Um, some quizzes just to sort of, we'll do those at the beginning of class just to sort of help you recall what you learned the last class. And uh, then there's a, an extensive uh, list of um, uh, resources that I've used. In fact, if you look at the fourth one down, the book that I just referenced is written out in full there. So the, the mini assignments will be as follows. I'm going to teach you a process, a step-by-step -step process that you'll go through when you're, whenever you're studying the Bible. The better you become at it, you'll be able to skip some of those steps. But I'll teach you that process, and I'm going to have you put that process into practice on the book of 1 John. So that will be an assignment. We'll discuss that more. The second assignment, I'm going to have you do a structural outline of 1 John, which I will also teach you how to do before it's due. And the third thing is I'm going, I would like you to do a word study. And you can pick one of two words. You can pick the Greek word sarx, which means flesh or sin nature in the New Testament. Or you can pick the Hebrew word harag, which means kill or murder or perhaps several other things. You're going to have to find that out for yourself. And we'll see if the Bible differentiates between killing and murder and intentionality and murder. And under the sarx one, you'll, de you'll determine whether it's your flesh and blood that gets into trouble, or whether it's uh, some mystical element that people often refer to as the sin nature, or whether those are both the same, or whether there's some sort of a tie-in. So that, that's what you'll determine in that word study. And uh, that's about it. So you're going um, to do an outline of the book. You're going to put the Bible study stepladder into process on the book, and then you're going to do a word study. All right? So that's what we're going to try to accomplish so we're going to go for six nights. You probably noticed in the advertisement there's one night when we won't be here. That's May 5th because Susie and I are celebrating our 20th anniversary. And um, it will be a very bad example as your pastor to come and teach a class on the night of my 20th anniversary. We'll just be at home watching TV, but um, <laughs> there won't be a class that night, okay? Okay, so let's get right into it. The first thing we want to do is look at some basic terms. Um, our intention is not to overwhelm you with fanciful language, but if you're going to study any discipline, you sort of have to know its basic terminology. So if you're going to be a medical doctor, you have to learn the big word cardiovascular, whether you like it or not. If you're going to be a mathematician, you have to learn the word trigonometry. In the same way, if you're going to be a budding theologian and student of scripture, you need to know some basic terms. So the first word that uh, I think you'll find it in your, your notes is hermeneutics. Now this comes from uh, the Greek word diermeneo, and here's how we define hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is the art and the science of biblical interpretation. This uh, act of interpreting, if you think about it, is an art form. Why? Well, you're reading a 
book that is filled with poetry, that is filled with metaphor, that contains fanciful visions like we find in Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation, figures of speech. So it's an art. If you're in high school, English courses are under the the art banner. So that's why the act of interpretation is an art. And so if you're more artistically oriented, this will appeal to you. But it's also a science in a sense because it demands a rigorous and objective study of the rudiments of grammar in order to interpret the Bible as a literary work. So I know grammar is an art form, but it's, it's I'm emphasizing the idea of it being rigorous and disciplined and process-oriented. And when you study, it's similar to the scientific method in that you sort of read a passage and you sort of hypothesize, knowingly or unknowingly, a meaning and you may be right or you may be wrong. So as you start to then dig deeper and put it through your, your uh, processes, you then come back and affirm or disaffirm your initial conclusion, correct? So we've all done this. You know, We're reading maybe a passage of the Bible for the first time. We're like, well, I think that means yada, yada, yada. And then we look at the broader context. And we explore the language. And we do some reading on it. We come back. We're like, yeah, I was right. Or I didn't get that one right. I got to readjust. So it's the same in science, where you sort of come up with a hypothesis, you go through a process, and you come back and affirm or disaffirm your process, right? So in that sense, hermeneutics is a science. So when we use the word interpretation, we're using that as a synonym, a like word to hermeneutics. So interpretation, biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, those are synonyms, okay? The Greek word itself means, if you were translating this Greek word in English, you could translate it as interpretation or meaning. If you drop the first two letters and add an H sound to it, you have more or less the English word hermeneutics, hermeneo, and that's how we uh, came up with that word. So let me give you a few biblical examples of where this word appears. So we'll look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. By the way, bring a Bible every night, preferably an English standard version. Um, that is my favorite English version. It doesn't have to be yours. I mean, we'll never be really good friends if it isn't. But um, we can at least be part of the same church. Um just kidding. But bring an English Standard Version because that'll make it easy for everybody when we're cross-referencing. Even if you, some of you bring tablets or you have an iPhone, just download the, the ESV and then you can find it without necessarily purchasing one. But it would be best if everybody was working from the same translation. So we're in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. So notice this. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, right, right here, by the way, just as an aside, we have an interpretive issue. Because Matthew is quoting from a 700-year-old prophecy. And there's a whole aspect to biblical interpretation that asks the question, hear this very clearly, how many different ways is it appropriate for a New Testament writer to quote from the Old Testament scripture? 
You might think there's only one. There are many, 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 many more than your English teacher would ever allow you to get away with if you were writing a research paper and quoting from someone else. So we then will need to spend some time in this course understanding the various ways in which a New Testament writer was allowed to quote from an Old Testament source. So that's going to be a topic. I'm just, again, whetting your appetite. But notice the next words, which means, which means, dare monero, die monero, which means, this is the word that we're looking at. Notice the, the writer is doing some hermeneutics for his audience by interpreting for them the word Emmanuel. He's telling them what it means. So we have hermeneutics going on right in the scriptures. Let's go to Mark. Uh, we'll kind of do these in order, so you don't have to flip back and forth. Mark chapter 5, verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. So he's, the Talitha kumi is Aramaic, but it's being written in Greek. So he interprets the meaning of that phrase for the Greek reader. You can go over a few more chapters. Math, uh, Mark 15 Verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Notice over and over again, there's words that the New Testament writer is presenting to his New Testament audience from another language. So he's interpreting the meaning of those words for his listener, for his reader. I have several more we could look at, but I'll skip ahead to um, 1 Corinthians 12. By the way, if you're going to be a good student of the Bible, you need to memorize in order the books of the Bible. That's like ground zero. You should know them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You should know it. Okay, You should know the Old Testament. Okay, When I was a kid, we learned the songs. Then we went into contests. I actually won the contest, 15 seconds, the whole Bible. Brag a little bit. But again, that's to whet your appetite. You should be able to quote the books of the Bible. And that way, you know, you're in Mike and you're thinking, okay, I got to go to Zechariah. Am I supposed to go forward or back? And just kind of rattle it off in your head and you get there. It's, it's, it's going to save you a lot of time. So take time to memorize in order the books of the Bible. So we're in 1 Corinthians 12.10. Um, to another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. This is actually the word hermeneutics there in reference to a gift, the ability to interpret these foreign languages that the early church was blessed with for purposes of gospel proclamation. Now, um, obviously the Old Testament was uh, not written in, um, in Greek. So 
unless you're looking at the Septuagint, you would not expect, which, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you would not expect for this word to uh, appear in the Old Testament. But the act of interpretation is illustrated. So, for example, in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra is reading to the people, and he reads it, and then he interprets it to the people. So they, he reads it to them all day long, and then he takes time to interpret for them the meaning of the text. So in some senses, when you preach or teach a Bible lesson, you're doing hermeneutics. You're reading the scripture. You'd kind of be a poor teacher if you just read it, close it, okay, class is done, see you later. You then interpret it for your, your class. You interpret it like on a very literal level. What does it actually mean? Then you often would generate discussion about it. You'd illustrate it. You'd suggest application. Under application, you might aim at the head, the heart, the hands. So you're doing the act of interpretation or hermeneutics when you preach or teach, broadly speaking. Okay? So they did it in the Bible. We need to do it as well. So hermeneutics is the act of what? Interpreting the Bible. Now, a couple other words that are important to learn are the words exegesis and its wicked sister, eisegesis. Now, exegesis means to draw out. So in relationship to hermeneutics, you're drawing out... uh, Sorry, a little typo there. You're drawing out the meaning of the text. So we could say then that exegesis is the application of hermeneutical principles. So you're learning principles to do good hermeneutics. Then as you apply them, you're doing exegesis. So if in this course I say exegetical, I'm talking about drawing out the meaning. If I say I want you to be good exegetes, that means I want you to be good at drawing out the meaning. If I say this is bad exegesis, Maybe we're reading a commentary. That means the person has done a poor job in drawing out the meaning. So exegesis is the process of drawing out through a series of processes the meanings, the passage's meaning or meanings. Now the first two letters, X, this is actually from a little Greek word, X, which means out, to draw out. It's a little preposition. Like exit. Yes, exactly. Now, this is the same word with a different beginning, and this means into or in. And this comes from a little Greek word, ice, which means into. Eisegesis is the opposite of exegesis. It's when you impose your meaning into the text. You try to make the text mean what you want it to mean or what you think it would mean. Now, I can tell you this, sadly, many Christians are better at eisegesis than exegesis. They, they have a, knowingly or unknowingly, everybody has a philosophy of how the Bible is supposed to be read. And some people view it uh, in a way that I'm going to argue later in the course is, is inappropriate. And it's almost like they, they see the Bible as a collection of words that they can sort of impose any spiritual meaning upon that suits their interests. 
So to give you a crazy example, there's a passage in the book of Esther where the king, you know, King Xerxes, the Persian king, issues a royal decree. It's in the king's name to the people. Now, I had a guy actually argue with me that that passage verifies the fact that only the King James Version is the appropriate version of the Bible because it was the only version of the Bible issued in the king's name. And the Bible says this proclamation was issued in the king's name. Now, when he told me this, it took me quite a while to wrap my mind around what he was even trying to say because it seemed so ludicrous to me. But then it dawned on me, he's taking the language... He's extracting the language, the phraseology of the text without any consideration for its context or purpose and applying it to a completely different matter. Now that's an extreme example. But people often do that uh, even today in lesser ways but potentially equally dangerous ways. So we want to avoid eisegesis and all of us have a little bit of this in us because we're all subject to some faulty teaching at some point. So we want to try to weed out the eisegesis and do good exegesis. The fourth word we're going to mention over and over and over again is the word genre. Now years ago, this was never taught in Bible colleges or seminaries or Bible interpretation classes. People just didn't think about it. Because because our Bible is is wrapped up into a, a book form, it was originally in scrolls and on various... Uh, It was on parchment, it was on leather, it was on papyrus reeds, it was in scrolls. But our way of printing books is like this, right? You have a cover, and this has a a singular name on it, Study Bible. So I think of this as one book. Now, that's a benefit, because I don't want to come here with 66 scrolls every week, roll them out and try to find the right spot. But the disadvantage is, the visual of a Bible in one cover makes us think that it's all one book, and it's not. It's, there's 66 books, but in fact it's a little bit less than that technically because, for instance, First and Second Kings was one scroll divided into two for readability, First, Second Samuel, First and Second uh, uh, Chronicles. But give or take, there's 66 books in the English Bible, And if you count them, there's probably closer to like 60 if you actually put the part one and part two back together. But what we do is we open it and we read it like any other book. So we're reading Genesis and then we're over in like Daniel 12 and then we're in Luke and we think of them almost like just different chapters and we read it flat. So we employ the same principles reading all these different kinds of literature and this is a faulty method. When you read a narrative that was written 1,200 years before Christ, you have to read it differently than apocalyptic literature written in the first century. You read a letter, like an epistle we call them, differently than you read a gospel. There's different interpretive techniques you employ. So just to give you a, we'll get into this more, but just to give you a modern example, if I give you a love letter, and then I give you a, um, a set of instructions as to how to build a shed. These are, in fact, two different kinds of literary genre. And intuitively, you will read them differently. You may not, you may not be able to write out the, the, 
the reasons why you read them differently, but you've been taught to read a love letter differently than you are taught to read instructions. Likewise, you read a historical book differently than you read a math textbook. There are different kinds of literary genre, we call it. So we want to learn the basic literary genres. There's about a dozen of them, but we're going to learn four or five of them, the basic literary genres, so that when we read the Bible, we can read it in light of its literary genre. Now, if you want a book for this, you want to just write down a book, you want to build your library. A fellow by the name of Leland, L-E-L-A-N-D, Riken, R-Y-K-E-N, wrote a little book, a little bit shorter than this, probably 20, 25 years ago, called How to Read the Bible as Literature. He was actually an English professor. And it's a, it's a great call upon the church to do a good job in reading the Bible according to its literary genre. So that's another word. So those are just four words I want, I want to sort of familiarize, familiar, uh, familiarize you with uh, as we get going. Um, again, some books are going to contain a lot of instruction in the form of commandments. Others are going to instruct you equally well, but they're not going to come to you in the form of commandments, like thou shalt and thou shalt nots. You're going to have to find them in the meter, the rhythm, the parallelism, the figures of speech of, let's say, the Proverbs or the Psalms. So they're cloaked, but they're there. They're still preachable. They're still teachable. Let's then touch upon a few reasons why what we're doing tonight is extremely important. What's the importance of biblical interpretation? Why would you want to come into this building on a Tuesday night with weather like this. You could be out walking and, well, maybe this isn't a good example. But there will be some nights, there will be some nights, I'm sure in the next six weeks, where you, where you will come home from work and you will be tempted to stay home. Do not sin against the Lord. Okay, come. Okay. But there will be some nights where uh, the weather will call to you and you'll desire to be out running or whatnot. So we need to underscore the importance of biblical interpretation. So here are a few reasons. First of all, there's the doctrinal reason. The Bible tells us that the word of God is useful for teaching. So scripture then is useful for teaching. The great doctrines of our Bible are not discovered in the crucible of experience. They are verified often experientially, but you don't just find it about the Trinity experientially, walking around in the woods, observing God's beautiful creation. You have to discover it in the Word of God. You don't discover the Gospel just sort of experiencing life. You have to encounter God's special revelation of Himself. So the Bible is useful for teaching doctrine, Therefore, Scripture is useful for teaching, for instructive purposes. We often say, you know, it functions as our textbook for life and faith. It is God's eternal curriculum for us to live by and for us to teach to others to live by. Now, you've probably all heard this. Um, I didn't make this up. I don't know who made this up, but it's a great quote. The church is only ever one generation away from uh, uh, extinction, right? So think about it. Everybody... Everybody in the world today that is a Christian 
assuming maybe the oldest Christian's 100, let's say, uh, wasn't here 100 years ago, and therefore the entire Church of Jesus Christ in every language and every nation around the world is a different church than it was just 100 years ago, right? And we could probably reduce that down and say, realistically, most people in most churches haven't been there for longer than maybe 50 years. So if we just stop teaching, everybody just stop teaching, stop studying, start reading their Bible, it wouldn't take very long for, from a human perspective for the church to go extinct. So therefore, every generation has to relearn what the previous has learned. We have to do a good job in instructing and teaching people on basic Christian doctrine and truth and then taking them into advanced studies as they mature and develop. So if we do a lousy job teaching people how to study their Bible, what, what's going to be the, the detriment to the next generation? They're going to probably get some false teaching. And who knows how many centuries it'll take to weed that out. We can point to many times in church history where some one individual or a, a small cluster of Christians taught something that was false and it spread like wire, wildfire around the world. It became so entrenched that it took centuries to weed out. So this is one of the reasons why we have to be good students of the Bible. And if you say, well, I'm not naturally a student. Oh, well, neither am I. Okay, I'm not naturally a student. I wanted to drop out of high school and install pipes. Sometimes I still want to install pipes. Okay? <laughs> but the Lord called me to ministry, and so I had to learn to be a student. Okay, I will not show you my grade 10 report cards. They're bad. So to be a student of the Bible doesn't mean you naturally have to be an academic or a studious person. So don't use that as your excuse. All of us are called to study the Bible. Some are going to be more naturally inclined to do that than others. I get it. But we're all called to study our Bible. Um, why the need for biblical interpretation? Haven't enough books already been written on, on the Bible already? So you can go find commentary after commentary. Why, why do... Why would we want to study the Bible when other people have studied it for us? You ever thought about that? Why would you want to go spend your time and hours studying the Bible when I work here and I can do it for you? Right? That's why you tithe, right? So that I can study the Bible for you? So why would you want to do what's already been done? Several reasons I'll present to you. Jesus and the apostles modeled it. Now, granted, the New Testament wasn't written, but the Old Testament, what we now call the Old Testament, they didn't call it that. God's word, the first 39 books, were complete. They'd been finished for probably 350 years. And Jesus and the apostles didn't say, well, you know, the prophets 100 years ago, they wrote all about it, so why should we? No, they studied the Bible for themselves, so they modeled it. The second reason is each person is accountable for it. So I'll give you just one example. Now this applies specifically to teachers, but you shouldn't think of this strictly as people who teach in a formal sense. If you open your mouth and tell people about the word of God, you're responsible for what you teach. So you need to make sure you're teaching the right thing. So let's check out James chapter 3. This is a haunting verse if you know your inadequacies, but it's supposed to be a bit of an encouraging verse too. So James 3.1, speaking somewhat tongue-in-cheek, 
Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. A little bit haunting, right? Now, again, yeah, there are people that are gifted at teaching. They're installed official in our churches as teachers and preachers. But if you have children, you're mentoring people, you're talking over the fence with your neighbor about God's word. We all, I doubt there's a Christian in this room today that hasn't done some teaching. May not be a lesson plan, three-point sermon, but we all teach on some level, correct? So we're going to be judged for that. So don't ride in someone else's shirt tails and assume they've done the job. Make sure in your heart of hearts you're teaching that which you believe is true. And even if you're wrong, maybe God will go a little easier on you because at least you were sincere in the, the attempt instead of lazy and just allowing someone else to do it for you. A third reason is that new archaeological and linguistic evidence is appearing all the time. There was no such thing as the ESV study Bible pre-2001. Well, it actually was an update of the Revised Standard Version, but the ESV as it stands wasn't here 15 years ago, and therefore all of the notes that are in it weren't written 15 years ago. This, this is new material. Now, some of it's a fresh way of saying the same old, same old, but we're digging up stuff in Israel, we're finding out more about ancient customs, there's a glut of information coming to us in written and literary form, and... Uh, we want to make sure we're fresh. And as we're interpreting the Bible, making sure that we're looking at it with the latest and greatest tools at our disposal. And the awesome thing is, is that we live in a generation where we're receiving more of it than people in churches often received over like 500-year periods in the past. There's just so much information coming out that uh, the great news is it's encouraging us in our faith, not discouraging us in our faith if it's used properly. A fourth point is that many assumptions about the scripture are no longer accepted in society. So when we teach and preach the Bible, we, there is an apologetic dimension to it, meaning that we're always on some level defending its truth or presenting it to the new believer. And when we do, each culture and context and generation has a... a a differing amount of information that they know about the Bible. So let me say this differently. If you were in Windsor, Ontario in uh, 1950, and you said Bible, most people would know what that meant and had probably seen it or owned one or received one from a Gideon in school. Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, they would kind of know because that was more or less the culture. I mean, even atheists would know what that was. And most people probably could uh, give you a little bit of Bible content. You know, they kind of knew who Jesus was and basic Christianity. It was sort of part of our culture more, so people more or less knew it. But 10 years ago, when we were having our house built, there was a young man, white, born in Canada, born in Windsor, 21, 22 years old, painting the house. I stopped by one day to see how things were going. I started chit-chatting with him. He'd never even been in a church. He'd never set foot in a church for any reason in his 20-something years of life. And I, I would expect that if he was like an immigrant from Pakistan. But this guy was born here. He'd never even been in a church. He's totally clueless. So we live in a post-Christian culture. 
And the assumptions that previous generations grew up with about the Bible no longer hold true for the majority of people in our culture. This is a post-Christian culture. Uh, it's more post-Christian in Quebec than it is maybe in Ontario. Quebec has the lowest number of evangelical Christians from uh, Nunavut to, what's the, what's the bottom country in South America, like Argentina or something? To Argentina, to the Falkland Islands. In all the Americas, the lowest, the lowest percentage of evangelicals, just slightly higher than a half a percent are in Quebec. So our country as a whole is secular and uh, clueless to the Bible. And in addition to that, those of you who've been around church for a while, now we're not, we're not just brag, giving ourselves brownie points here, but most churches, most churches in the city of Windsor today do not teach the Bible. They teach about the Bible, around the Bible, or biblical themes but I've been in them. Most of them do not actually teach people the word of God. It's sad. If we teach the word of God uh, and people say we're exceptional, it's too bad. We should be very average. But the point is, even in the church, there's sort of this nonchalant, shrug of the shoulders attitude about the Bible. So we need to get into it. Fifth point, proper interpretation aids not only in clear teaching, but clear application. So what are we looking for? We're looking for application, right? The application cannot be reduced to this is what you need to do. It might be this is what you need to think. It might be this is how you should feel. But broadly speaking, application is the end goal of biblical preaching, teaching, Bible study. And uh, we need to study the Bible because the situations we're experiencing are constantly changing. So our kids are experiencing certain challenges, temptations, and questions that we didn't experience. I'll give you several examples. I did not know a single homosexual when I was 13 years old. I knew what homosexuality was, but I didn't know anybody that was a homosexual. I would be surprised if very many of the kids in this church who are, let's say, past grade six didn't know at least one or know of one. I would be surprised. So they're, they're then going to be growing up in a culture where they have to deal with that issue among several other gender and sexual related issues that we were ignorant of or that just really didn't exist in our culture. Uh, technological questions, ethical questions. Um, some of these are a little older, but you know the abortion question. Uh, people in our culture weren't dealing with this 50 years ago, maybe 40, but not 50. Um, euthanasia, um, you know, the assisted suicide debates. So there's a lot of ethical questions. Um, postmodernism, rationalism, all of these philosophical matters that 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 apply to how we know how we learn. Um, these are the things that are the next generation, the current generation, you could say, are dealing with. So we need to constantly study it so we can continue to apply and reapply it to the changes in our culture. And then finally, the Bible is, is, is fun. It's exciting to read. It's uh, interesting. It's intellectually stimulating. And it's spiritual light to us. It's meant to give us light, not confusion. And I know all of you 
myself included, have said at some point or another, reading a passage of the Bible, I'm confused. Now, if you've ever been confused about the Bible, anybody here ever been confused about the Bible? Then you have to study it, because it's not meant to confuse you, it's meant to enlighten you. So if there is a single verse in this book that still confuses you, you need to keep studying. So that means all of us, right? Because it's meant to be a source of light. It's not meant to confuse us. And there's so much there, that means that you have a lifetime of work ahead of you. Now, um, I just want to touch on something, um, a little historical fact. In 1950, a theologian by the name of Bernard Ram, R-A-M-M, first published his book entitled Protestant Biblical Interpretation. And this book served as like the standard hermeneutics textbook in seminaries in, in North America for many, many years. But something changed in our culture. We moved from what's called a modern culture to a postmodern culture. And we need to be careful when, in 1999, when I started teaching in the seminary, I used to teach courses on um, Christian worldview, and I used to always lambaste postmodernism. Now, the definition I would always offer my students is postmodernism is the philosophy of life that downplays or denies the validity of objective truth. So, Every Christian, we're into truth, so throw postmodernism out the door. But I've changed, and I no longer see all of postmodernism as the enemy. I think there are aspects of postmodernism that actually aid in the Christian journey, just as I've discovered there are aspects of modernism that hinder us in the Christian journey. Let me explain. Modernism essentially flows out of the Enlightenment. And during the Enlightenment, if you've studied history, there was a heavy emphasis on this idea that everything that is knowable must more or less be rational. So heavy emphasis on logic, rational, out of that came the scientific method. So fast forward several generations, and now we still have people in our culture that say, well, it's not true unless you can prove it, what? Scientifically. Now, they may or may not know this, but philosophically it's because they're products of a science, a scientific formula that came about, was conceived during a period of time known as the Enlightenment and the rationalism that came out of that. So if you say it enough, people believe it to be true. And what's been said many times is that you can only know something if it's rational or provable in some sort of a formulaic way. We all know experientially that's not true. Okay, we all know experientially that you cannot take the concept of righteousness or love or beauty and run it through the scientific method and come up with anything. So anytime science uses value words, they're no business. Speaking about ancient history, okay, that's, that's out of the realm of their discovery as well. And no business using value words. They also have no business getting mad at people who disagree with them because anger is flows from a value or some sort of a moral force. <laughs> but nevertheless, in postmodernism, to, to sort of view it in the extreme, the, the postmodernists rose up and said, We're, we, we want to question objective data, and we believe that 
that which is true is experienced through experience. Again, I'm just using a very, I'm simplifying this greatly. So if you can experience it, it's true. So now we have sort of the the cliches like if it feels good, do it, or um, kind of an emphasis on selfishness. Uh, you know, go 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 take life by the horns and do what works for you, and this sort of uh, idea. But both of them are really just overreactions. And I think in the center we have, even in the Word of God, we have the communication of truth using what we could call a a sense of modernism. There's rational, there's deductive, there's thou shalt not murder. That's pretty deductive, pretty straightforward. But there's also uh, emphasis on experiencing the beauty of the Lord. There's, There's metaphor, there's imagery, there's poetry that the biblical writers use in order to communicate a truth. So I think that in some ways, if we harness the best of modernism and postmodernism, we actually aid in our hermeneutical endeavors and aid in our study of scripture. Nevertheless, Ram wrote from a very modernist perspective, and when the postmodernist theologians came in, they basically threw it out. And because of that, in part, there has been a steady decline in biblical awareness because even in our churches... You have many people that think, well, truth, defined along modernist lines, isn't important. So, so we have some young people, for instance, or younger people. They tend to be the most provocative. It's not a slight on younger people, but I mean, we either all are young or once were young. And um, in those young years, we tend to be provocative. We challenge the status quo. We we move from dependence to, to independence, and then we finally grow up and are, become interdependent. But during those young years, we challenge the status quo, and many of the young people in our churches today will ask questions like, why do we, why do we quarrel over truth? Like, who cares if the church down the street is not Trinitarian? Like, does it really matter if someone's gay? Like, really? Like, this is what we're fighting over? Um... Why would you want to have any rules about divorce and remarriage if you know the world's going to hell in a handbasket? Like, wh- why are we talking about that kind of stuff when there's still some people that are going to hell? Shouldn't we just focus on the gospel? And there's sort of this reductionistic sense in many of our churches. Let's just let's just agree on the the most basic, the most common things, and let's not concern ourselves with everything else. Let's just experience and let's just enjoy and let's just get along. And you can see there's danger to that because Jesus and his apostles and the prophets before him often quarreled over things that the postmodernist young person today would say is not important. If it's in the Bible, it must have been important enough to record and to give to us. So we we have to sort of be aware of the cultural influences that are fighting against us. I recognize that in some senses I'm preaching to the choir because you chose to come tonight. So you must have some interest in study. But my hope and my part of my vision for my pastoral ministry in my lifetime is that I will help to aid or create or maybe even at times recreate a hunger for truth among God's people. And that that truth, that word T- R-U-T, 
TH will be properly understood, not as just rational, deductive, logical commandments, but truth defined biblically, bringing together the best of what we would call a postmodernist and a modernist view of knowledge. God confronts us and communicates to us and commands in didactic, deductive statements, but he also communicates to us in poetry and in song and in figures of speech and in imagery that, that helps us to understand him in a greater way, but not a lesser way than logical syllogisms can. Okay? So this is very important for us to think about. The second reason why studying the Bible is important is because the Bible functions, according to God's word, as a tool for rebuke. You've got to be a sick person if you like rebuking people. I hate it. Sometimes I even beg the elders and the staff to deal with a situation that I don't want to deal with, and then when it comes back on me, right? And uh, so whether I'm dealing with it or whether someone else is dealing with it, and somehow I get away, and I, I hate it. Like, it keeps me up at night. It turns my stomach. It gives me, you know, acid reflux and all that kind of stuff. But on some level, too bad for me. That's part of God's calling in my life. It's not my calling to do all the rebuking, okay? Hopefully just very little of it. But the Bible functions as a tool for us to rebuke others. And even though the word rebuke often carries with it the imagery of a self-righteous, pompous, you know, arrogant Christian wagging their finger at another person, uh, this is not the scriptural image Rebuke is brother to brother, sister to sister within the life of the church. It's calling out sin or false doctrine in a gracious and loving manner for restorative purposes only and ever. Galatians 6.1 Behold, you who are spiritual, what do you do? You restore a brother gently. Be careful lest you yourself be tempted. You bear their burdens. Um... To go to someone and say, I think you're doing wrong and you need to change, and they respond, well, how do you know? Uh, uh, pastor told me it was wrong. It's not going to fly. You need to be able to come with the old statement, you know, book, chapter, and verse. Here's what the Bible says, or at least here's what the Bible strongly implies. You're not always going to find a verse that matches every situation, but the broader teachings of Scripture will be useful. You take people to the Word of God. They may not like you, but the fault will be upon them. But the fault is partly on you if you rebuke people just out of your own personal opinion with no biblical basis. You will, if you're hanging around other Christians long enough, have to at some point do your job and rebuke somebody for something might be something small or might be something significant and very painful but we if we're in relationship with people folks there's going to be rebuke at some point at some time it's just going to happen it's either going to be you rebuking your spouse or your best friend or your kids or your parents or another church member or me or whatever it's going to happen so the bible properly understood helps us to see truth, understand truth, and be able to use it for those purposes. 
So we have teaching, rebuking, correcting. The word of God corrects error. Um, all truth is God's truth, of course, we say. So if something is true in, in the sciences or in math or biology, it's God's truth in that sense. But special truth, special revelation is found in the Bible. So the Christian must use the Bible as sort of a magnifying glass through which he examines all other truth claims. We're not going to reject all. We're not, we should never say the only thing that is true is in the Bible. Like, do you exist? Do you exist, people? I'm looking for a response. Do you exist? Okay. How do you know you exist? You're not going to find a verse that proves your existence. There's something else you appeal to, to know that you exist. It's, it's not a book, chapter, and verse. Um, this is carpet. Don't argue with me otherwise. This is carpet. That's true, but I don't have a verse for you to prove it. So there's truth outside of the Bible, of course. But we, we look at life, especially on a moral level, level of purpose, through the magnifying glass of Scripture to, to make the adjustments that are necessary. And then we have like the positive, the proactive. Uh, the Bible talks about the Word of God being profitable for training and equipping. So it serves the uh, purpose of training the believer in righteousness. As we read it, we're confronted with our own sinfulness. I'm going to tell you this, not to bum you out, but if you are newer to the faith, it doesn't get better. You become more aware of your sin, not less. Yes, you experience victory after victory after victory, but you become more aware of your own sin the longer you've been a Christian. But that's not supposed to be a drag. You know, it sounds like a drag. That will elevate, if you properly respond, your appreciation for God's grace. That's what it will do. And out of that humility then, God conforms us increasingly to the example that Christ established for us to imitate. And as such, it can be said of the Bible that it's the book of books that conforms body, mind, soul, and spirit to the Lord of Lords. So we study the Bible for training in that kind of equipping. When we are confronted with God's word, we become thoroughly equipped to function as redemptive agents in a fallen world. I would like to think of myself as a man on a mission. Not like James Bond, but I'm a man on a mission. I am a redemptive agent, not a secret agent. I'm not 007, but... I am a redemptive agent. I am God's mouthpiece. I am God's hands. I am God's feet. I am God's presence. And so are you as the body of Christ in a broken world. And so as we sort of go into this world, which is anti-God, which is fallen, which we all know in our culture is somewhat antagonistic towards, towards Christianity, we go with our guidebook, our instructions, our source of truth, our source of encouragement, our, um, our bread. It's the, it's the word of God. It feeds the soul. And this is what allows us to be effective agents in a, fro uh, a broken world. Then we have the personal dimension. You're going to study the Bible because it's going to help you. This isn't to be selfish, but 
I'm interested in my own spiritual growth. And the Bible then, if I understand it properly, is going to refresh me and encourage me. It's going to, as I delve into the word of God, it personally convicts, it edifies, it allows me to grow in godliness. So the art and science of biblical interpretation is a task for all faithful believers who desire to grow wise for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. So I hope that you are thoroughly equipped that when the sun rises next Tuesday and shines all day long and it's a beautiful night and the wind is blowing and the deer are leaping through your neighborhood and <laughs> you'll say, you know, I, I need to come, I need to study and I need to be a, thorough, a thoroughly equipped student of God's word. Okay, so we'll take a break. We'll take about five or ten minutes just to fellowship and then we'll come back for part B. There's some snacks and refreshments in the back. Those of you that haven't been out, if you want to bring snacks and refreshments for the rest of the class, just bring them out. We don't have a list or anything, but we like to eat, and um, everyone can enjoy. So, one of the most fascinating discussions in any course on hermeneutics is, how did we get our Bible in the first place? If you don't know why, someone will tell you why they think or how they think we got it, and it probably will be false. So I'm going to do a brief intro to the history of the English Bible. And in order to understand the English Bible's history, we have to go back quite a ways to the history of the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible, the, um, the books of the Old Testament and New Testament. So let's start with something extremely basic, the word Bible. The word Bible comes from... A Greek word, biblos. Sounds kind of like Bible, right? So, biblos means book. Just means book. So the word Bible, in and of itself, is not a holy word. It just means book. Now, some people have suggested that the word Bible is an acrostic for basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, in part, that is true, but um, we just made that one up. It just means book. So it's a book, but it's a book containing several other books. So we have this Biblos of ours divided up into two sections. We have what we call the Old Covenant or Old Testament scriptures, and we have the New Covenant or New Testament scriptures. I actually prefer the word covenant. I, I wish... I wish we could just delete Old Testament and New Testament and say Old Covenant and New Covenant because it's more modern language, but we'll probably never get over it because we're all, most of us were taught Old Testament, New Testament. But really, it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant scriptures is what it is. And under this category, we have in our English Bibles 39 books, and here we have 27 New Testament books for a total of 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. Now, these books, the 39 Old Covenant books, record history that goes beyond this date, but were written probably from around 1500 BC up to about 400 BC. And these books, again, they record history past the 1500-year mark, but this is when they were penned. And the New Covenant books 
were written, again, there's a little bit of debate, but probably from around the year 45 to 95 AD, what we call 95 AD. <clears throat> so you can see, even from uh, the perspective of how literature develops and language changes, that you're going to have a lot more diversity of writing style and Hebrew style uh, over the course of 1,100 years of writing as opposed to 50. So the New Testament books are much more homogenous. Their, their style of Greek is, is the same. In fact, they're written in what we call Koine Greek. This is more like a simplified common Greek as opposed to classical Greek. Koine Greek. And the Old Covenant scriptures were written in uh, Hebrew, mostly Hebrew, and at times were written in um, what's called Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is actually, the Hebrew borrows the Aramaic alphabet. So there's kind of sister languages, but this was more the language of all of Mesopotamia or much of Mesopotamia, whereas this was the language of a specific people group within the Fertile Crescent known as the Hebrews. So it's a, it's, it's a smaller slice of the broader language group, Semitic languages. Now, in Hebrew, um, we also have an interesting phenomenon. We have loan words. What's a loan word? We have them in English. Petite is a loan word. Is petite an English word? It's French. But we sort of borrowed it and integrated it into our language. And we could go on probably for hours shouting out loan words in English. Words that we have borrowed from other, from German, from French, from, from Latin, from Greek, from Hebrew, from Spanish, that we've included. And most languages do this when you're associating with other people. I mean, petite is just kind of a cool word. You know, it's, it, it serves in a way that small that's just not as cool of a word. Okay, petite is just a better word. So it works for us. So in the Hebrew Bible, we have loan words. So you'll have Syriac, you'll have in Hebrew Aramaic words, you'll have words from different Canaanite languages that slipped in. And here's the, the problem at times. Sometimes they only appear once. Now, if a word appears in the Bible only once, the fancy word for this is hapax legomena. You like that? This is going to be on your quiz. Okay. Now, these are very frustrating to study if you're doing word studies. Because the way you generally do a word study is you find a word in John 3, and you go to a concordance, and you find the 27 other places in the Bible it's used, and you study all of their contexts. You're like, okay, this is what it means. But if it only appears once, what do you do? Then you've got to be like a linguist and go and study the language it came from, which is generally what they do. But there are several instances of hapax legomena in the Bible, and this is where sometimes you get into passages that are difficult to be dogmatic on their meaning because you, the, maybe one of the critical words in the text just appears once, and it's borrowed from Syriac. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> now, one of the big benefits we have about the Old Testament is that about... 200 years before Christ, a bunch of uh, 
Hebrews got together and said, you know what we're going to do? They were actually in Egypt at the time, so they were speaking Greek, not really using Hebrew. They said, we're going to translate the Old Covenant into Greek. Thank God they did. And the version that they came up with is known as the Septuagint. It's also known sometimes by its uh, Roman numerals LXX for 70. And we still, I have one in my, my office. The Septuagint is written in Greek a couple hundred years before Christ. It's translated from the same Hebrew Bible that Jesus would have been quoting from and reading from. So the great thing about this is this now helps us to get into the minds of the Hebrew people 200 years before Christ, and when it comes to Hapax Legomena, they give it to us in Greek, which often allows us to understand the word in a way that if we only had the Hebrew manuscript would confuse us. See? So there's little things like that if you're studying the Bible. Um, having the Septuagint, being aware of its usefulness is, is, is very helpful. Now, it, um, as I mentioned, the, um, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Now, from sort of an apologetic perspective, it's a good thing that most of our Christian doctrine can be found within the pages of the, the Greek Bible, because the Greek is much more of a precise language, one could say, than Hebrew is. If you look at any of these English words that I've written up here, okay, what is this? What's this letter? It's a consonant. What's this? It's a vowel. What's this? Okay, well, if this was a Hebrew word, it would appear like this. No vowels. You just had to know the vowels. So Hebrew is a language that does not contain vowels. It's just consonants. Now, they have vowel sounds, but they don't use vowels. They just say them. Well, you can understand that... Um, this BBL, you could maybe throw an A between the first two Bs and an E between the B and the L, and then you got Babel. On occasion, when you're translating through the Hebrew text, you're like, okay, the, we get the equivalent of the BBL. I don't know whether this is supposed to go Bible or Babel, because I don't have the vowels. So you have to do one of two or three things. You go to the LXX. And you find out what the Hebrews 200 years before Christ thought it meant. And that's, that's a save. Or you look at the context. And most of the time, the context makes it pretty clear what the word is. But there's times when you find yourself at a dead-end street and you just don't know. The ancients knew, but we don't. We're a couple thousand years removed from it. Now, there's enough of these hang-ups in the Old Testament that... Um, we are very thankful that God in his grace continued to reveal himself through Christ and the apostles, and we got the New Testament, because the New Testament, again, is where the lion's share of our theology comes from. And from the New Testament writers, we also learn much about how they interpreted and understood the Old Testament. How, what were they written on? Well, they were written on, initially, they would have been written on things like stones, Remember when Moses went up Mount Sinai, what did he come back with? Not paper from Staples. came back with stone tablets. And sometimes they're written on wood. Sometimes they're written on clay tablets. 
And later, scrolls made out of papyrus reed were woven together. So somebody came up with this genius, that's an R, idea of taking these reeds, maybe a centimeter wide, very thin, and interweaving them this way and that way. It actually became pretty... Uh, 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 financially productive industry to make papyrus. And they'd make these, they'd weave these together, and it was su such a smooth surface that you could, you could then write on it. Okay? And so, like at Qumran, you've probably all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the vast majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls are written on papyrus. Some of them are written on gold. Some of them on leather, what we call vellum but most on papyrus. And so if you ever hear of papyri or papyrus, now you know what they're talking about. Paper did not come into use until about a thousand years ago. And um, even up till the turn of the century into the 1900s, most books were printed on linen. So if you have books in your library, 1800s, probably linen, 1900s, probably paper. Now the last book of the Hebrew Bible which is in its proper order, was Malachi. Malachi wrote in the 4th century. So sometime in, in the, the early 300s, Malachi's prophecy was complete. And then from the time of Malachi to the time of Christ, we have no major writing prophets on the scene. Now, during this period, the what are often called the 400, year, 400 years of silence, because there's no major prophetic figures in the scene, the nation of Israel studied and consider, considered God's divine truth for the nation. And this is when they sort of took the, the books of the Bible and brought them together. And they... When they looked at what we call the Old Testament, they would call it the Law, the Prophets, and the Writing. So even if you look at a Hebrew Bible today that you would use for translation purposes, it'll say in Hebrew, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So it was organized differently. The Law is the same order as us. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. The Prophets were considered the books that we would call the major and minor prophets. Um, the writings would include things like the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, some of the historical books were put in the prophetic section. Some were put in the uh, writing section. And best as we can tell, they sort of categorize them a little bit. So when we read the Bible, we think like it's all divine, it's all inspired, it's all equally important. But in the Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew Bible was all God's word, but the Torah was supreme to it all because it was foundational. So they would elevate the Torah and their mind above the prophets and the writings. So by the time you come to the New Testament era and Jesus is on the scene, the, uh, the Hebrews have pretty much nailed down the books that they believe to be the word of God. And later we're going to talk about why they believe that to be true and why we believe the New Testament books to be true. We'll get into that. It's called the process of canonization. Um, but nevertheless, 
those are the books that um, they were using at the time. So this is why when Jesus, when Jesus um, preaches, he often says the scriptures or the script, the prophets say, and in the, the ear of his contemporaries, they would have understood that they're talking about what we would call the old covenant scriptures. So it was pretty much nailed down and, and they, they had it. They had their list complete. They weren't bickering, oh, well, should, should Isaiah be in here or shouldn't he? They had it nailed down. Now, have you ever heard of the Apocrypha? Anybody heard of the Apocrypha? So during this period of time, 400, to this period of time, people were still writing stuff. And Jewish people were writing stuff. They were writing their history. They were writing uh, spiritual books. And these books, which we now call the Apocrypha were written during this period of time, during that 400 years. Now, because they contain things like the history of Israel in terms of, um, for those of you that are in the last course we taught, remember the Maccabees? The Maccabees fought, they were Jews that fought against uh, Rome, or sorry, against the Greeks when the Greeks invaded Judea. And out of them, the Hasmonean king kingdom was put into place about a couple centuries before Christ. And um, two of the books are called, we call them First and Second Maccabees. So they record those victories and, and, and the wisdom that came out of that period of time. So you can understand because that was a significant period of time that these books were significant. But the books never claimed to be God's word. And... Jesus doesn't quote from them or the apostles don't quote from them or teach them as God's word. So they're not like the devil's books, but they were never considered the word of God. But the church, when the church was formed, the church maintained them in its library. They were considered healthy sources of information for the church. So from this period of time onward, going up to about 1500 A.D., Nobody was speaking ill of the Apocrypha, but what happened is because they've been around for so long, we have preachers that are now starting to preach from them. And the Catholic Church starts to validate some of its false doctrine from them. And therefore, when the Protestant Reformation took place and the, Protestant, the protesters broke away from the Roman Church, one of the allegations that the Protestants levied against the Catholics was some of your doctrine is coming from the Apocrypha, not from God's word. So they decided to make this genius move. And about 500 years ago, they decided to include the Apocrypha in what is now known as the Catholic Bible. So this explains why you might have a little kid say, how come, you know, they go to a Catholic school, how come the Catholic Bible has, you know, 70 some odd books in it and ours has 66? This is why. It's not that the Apocrypha is bad, healthy, it's good reading, some of it's kind of interesting, but it's not, it doesn't measure up to the standards of canonization as we shall understand later on. Now until the discovery of the Dead Sea scrolls in and around the 1940s to the 1960s, okay, this is again AD, not that long ago, some of you were probably born during that period of time. Uh, Dave was 10 years old in 1940. Um, he's in my life group, so I get to tease him. 
the oldest copy of the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew that we had. This is going to rock your boat a little bit. Dated to about 1000 AD. Well, you can understand you're sort of on you know, shaky ground when you're trying to defend your faith from someone. So, you know, the Bible's true, it's inerrant, it's inspired, it's never been changed. How do you know? Like, do you have any original copies? Well, no, but I, I got one that's like, you know, for, for, from the ones written here, like let's say Job, written before the Torah in all likelihood. Well, I got one, but it's, uh, it's actually 2,500 years removed from the event. Well, the first thing that a smart atheist is going to say is, how do you know it wasn't changed in 2,500 years, right? So the blessing of the Dead Sea Scroll discovery uh, is that the, the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls then provided us with manuscripts of the Old Testament that predate Christ by a few hundred years, the ones that Christ was quoting from. Now, up till those were discovered, the the what we call the text of the Old Testament, the, the, the version, if you will, of the Old Testament in Hebrew that we have, you might hear this language too, is called the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic Text. reason why it was named that is there were a group of scribes called the Masoretes who were commissioned to sort of uh, maintain the Hebrew Bible. They were the guys that added the chapter and the verse numbers for us at different times so we can find our way through. Jesus didn't have those. The Masoretic text is a good text. We discovered that it aligns itself largely with the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the few little verbal errors that had snuck in over the centuries since Christ were then clarified and updated by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now I want you to keep this in mind whenever we're talking about what version is better. Because any version of the Bible that predates the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is still using a Hebrew Bible as its basis for translation. It's only about a thousand years old. But all the modern versions have at their disposal the Dead Sea Scrolls that are like 22, 23, 2400 years old. So modern translators have this huge advantage of having far more, far more scrolls and manuscripts to verify the accuracy of every you know, dot, every period, every question mark, so to speak, than, like for instance, the King James uh, version did, because it, it only had at its disposal the Masoretic text. And with the Greek, we'll talk about this later, they also had an inferior copy of the Greek New Testament at their disposal as well. So that's a little bit about the, the history of the Hebrew up to the present. The Greek New Testament, the history of the Greek New Testament is much more straightforward than that of the Old Testament. All 26 books, or 27 books, were written within no more than about 60 years, max, maybe even closer uh, to each other. Koine is a common language of the people. It is not reserved for the educated elite only. The common man can read it. So God chose to communicate in the common language of the people. If you were to ask, well, what books of the Bible and the New Testament were written first? Probably Mark and Galatians were two of the earliest, followed by 1 Corinthians. So those are some of the earliest books of the New Testament that are written. 
but they were all completed again within a maximum of 60 years and probably closer to 40 years. So Mark, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, those would be like the earlier ones. And then obviously Revelation, not just because it's last in our Bible, but John wrote it on Patmos in around 95 AD, so it would have been a later, later written book. But the first gospel, we believe, that was written was Mark. Now, here's how this worked. So Mark sits down and he writes Mark. Now, how did he do it? That's kind of a basic question. He sat down and wrote the book. Probably not. He hired a scribe who was who had professional handwriting. Again, these were handwritten. They didn't have this stuff. So if you're going to put something out that's important, and you're like most guys, you have atrocious handwriting, you want to hire someone who's a pro. So... Most of, the, most of the New Testament was probably written by scribes under the supervision of the apostolic writer. Now, we know this because there's even times when you know, Paul's writing and then he says, notice this was written in my handwriting because he wants to verify it because then there were some people running around trying to write stuff on Paul's behalf, passing it off as Paul's letters. So, you know, you're probably reading through this beautiful letter and then all of a sudden it starts to go scribbly and, uh, okay, Paul's verifying it. That's old Paul. That's his writing. So a scribe was called an amanuensis and he was basically, he would sit there as a professional and the gospel writer would dictate to him uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what needed to be written. And then, you know, you have the, the, the letter would go out. Now, what we think probably happened is that when... A early group of disciples or a church received it. They saw the apostolic stamp of authority and they began to make copies and distribute it. In fact, there are times even in like the epistle of uh, of Ephesians where Paul talks about, you know, pass it on to the church of Laodicea when you're done with it. Because even though it was written to a specific church, he saw the benefit for other churches to read it as well. So they started to make copies so that the other churches could benefit from the apostolic truth contained within it. And that's how we have the explosion of manuscripts. Now, as the centuries roll along, uh, as with everything in you know, Christianity, it sort of becomes marketed. And um, you know, like the, the marketing gimmick, gimmick today are things like, um, we love Christian music, but there's like a marketing dimension to it. Um, you know, we love events, events for girls, but now someone's running around marketing. What's that thing? Um, like the crazy hair nights for girls. Oh. Uh, it's kind of gimmicky. I know my kids have been to it. But what do you call that thing, Sue? Uh, crazy, crazy hair tour, whatever. Like it's, it's, it's cool. Like it has a redemptive purpose, but there's a marketing dimension to it, right? So in, in the early centuries, schools would rise up and they would hire professional copyists to make scrolls and the way it would work is you know whatever there's 40 some odd people in here i start reading to you okay you get out your stylus and your papyri and i'm like the history of the greek new testament pause they're all writing it down right and this is how they would mass produce manuscripts for christian people now there were three major schools that rose up there was a school in Alexandria, Egypt. You've all heard of Alexandria, Egypt. And they produced some of the best and most professional, error-free copies of the Greek New Testament. Then there were um, 
what were, what were called the Western school. I'm not sure if it was one school or several schools, but we call them in um, in biblical study the the Western texts. So um, the, there was a school that would be north of the Mediterranean, I believe, the Western texts. And then later on, there was was a school called the Byzantine texts. This would be several centuries later into the Byzantine era. And each of these three major locales were producing texts. So when when we acquire these texts, dig them up, find them, discover them through archaeological evidence, scholars called textual critics, so they're looking at a text, they're criticizing it, they identify where it came from, and using several processes of elimination, they can identify where the typo errors come in. So someone... Just to use a silly example in English, you know, let's say I, I'm dictating to all of you, and you know, I got a little bit of a cold or something, and I'm like, you know, the, uh, you know, the 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 rat ate my hat. But you hear me say the cat ate my hat, and so you all record, or the majority of you record the wrong letter. Well, there are things like that that we find in Greek New Testaments. They don't affect doctrine, but you can see they're clearly typos. And then let's say that one of those ones with typos in it eventually becomes, you know, the the one that he's reading from wears out, so he grabs this really well-written one and he starts to read from it, and then the typo is disseminated. So we see within these strands of texts, the Alexandrian text, common errors, the Western text, common errors, the Byzantine text, common errors. But textual criticism allows us to weed those errors out, and we're literally dealing now with uh, less than 1% of the Greek New Testament that is subject to any debate as to uh, typos and uh, errors in the Greek New Testament, which is unattested to in ancient literature. So these groups copied it, disseminated it. Um, over, the, over, over time, the Byzantine school continued on into the Byzantine era, and so most most early uh, English translations of the Bible, not- notably the King James, all they had what is, was what is known as the Byzantine texts. So they had the Masoretic text, that's from the Old Testament, and they had the Byzantine text. Now, these are like really great copies, but they're not as good as the Alexandrian texts, which are far earlier, or the Dead Sea Scroll texts. So this is why there are times when Somebody who's, let's say, memorized the King James is reading through the ESV and all of a sudden there's like a word missing. I knew it. You know, these modern translators are trying to take words away from God's, take words out of God's mouth. They're trying to change them. It's not, no, there's no conspiracy unless it's Jehovah's Witnesses in the New World Translation. But um, the, the modern people, modern people who are employed as professional translators, some of whom are Christian and some of whom aren't, they don't have an agenda. They are professional PhD level translators. They work in huge teams. They deal with the latest and the greatest and the best Greek and Hebrew manuscripts to try to come up with the most accurate translations available. And that's not to downplay the significance of early versions like the King James Bible, but it is to say that you are on very shaky scholarly ground to argue that the King James translation is superior to some of the modern ones. In fact, you just make yourself out to look like a fool. So the church, um, it's okay to continue to update our English translations of the Bible 
and I've used several over my lifetime, depending on you know what's been available to me. I grew up on the King James, went to the NIV, went to the New King James. I was into the New Living for a while, the Contemporary English, and several years ago when I discovered the uh, ESV, I got my taste of heaven, and I've stayed there ever since. Okay, so it is estimated that there are somewhere between these are old numbers. I think there are far more than this now. 6,000 uh, Greek manuscripts or manuscript pieces that have been found and examined from the first century to the third century. And the interesting thing about this, somewhere in my library I have a book, General Introduction to the Bible by Norman Geisler, that has a chart in it that has how many ancient copies of like Plato do we have? And there's something like, I don't know, six. Um, you know, how many ancient copies of some other famous work from antiquity? And there's like seven. And then you get to the New Testament, it's like 5,000. And nobody runs around saying there's errors in Plato or errors in Socrates. They just accept it to be true because we got six good manuscripts and we got several thousand New Testament ones, but they're still trying to poke holes in it, right? So this is this should boost our confidence that there's there are a greater number of manuscripts for the New Testament than any other document from antiquity in any language, which I think is really cool. Not to mention the fact, this is not really an apologetic argument, but I hadn't thought about this till several years ago when someone shared this with me. The oldest and greatest in, in volume collection of human songs that we have anywhere on earth happen to be the Psalms of our Bible. We have more songs from ancient times than any other culture does, which is you know, pretty cool because we're big into music in our, in our Christian faith. So that's kind of a, a, an overview of the history of the scriptures. I find this to be a fascinating subject and an encouraging subject. Canonization. Let's talk, let's talk about canonization. So we spell canonization with one end. So when we talk about the, the canon of Scripture, we're not talking about a big you know, cast iron thing that you shoot balls out of to kill people. Canonization is the process of affirming, I'm using my language very carefully, what books are Bible and which books aren't. More specifically, what books are God's Word and what books aren't. So historically, Christians have believed that the canon of scripture, and by the way, this comes, there's no C in Greek, so this comes from the, the Greek word, I'll just write it on English, canon, which means rule or rod. So it's like straight. Canonization comes from this word. Historically, Christians believed that uh, the, the books that are considered God's word, it's not us up to us to figure it out. Those are determined by God. So it's not like we got a, a hat with a hundred little pieces of paper in it for like, Genesis, it's in, you know. <laughs> Esdras, it's out. You know, it didn't work that way. Even though a lot of modern uh, skeptics try to make, like if, if you read like Dan Brown kind of stuff, which is fictional, okay. There's some historical facts to it, but it's fictional. They sort of try to create, they try to take what goes on in the Roman church today and impose it upon the third century church under Constantine and say, you know, it was just all a big political thing. There was like this vote, should we be Trinitarians or shouldn't we? This is not 
true to the historical record. Men affirmed what God already inspired. So then the question is, well, what were they affirming? What makes a book canonical? And I'll just throw out a half dozen or so considerations that were given to what books would be in the canon. The first is pretty airtight. Did Jesus quote from them authoritatively? So this takes care of the Old Testament. If Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, thus says the word of the Lord, like it's kind of obvious that he saw Isaiah as the word of the Lord. So Jesus quoted extensively. Uh, I think, if I recall, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus quotes from somewhere around a dozen Old Testament books alone. So that, that's helpful. The second thing is, do they claim to be Scripture? Meaning, do they claim to be God's Word? Is the writer speaking in such a way that he's, he's claiming to be speaking on God's behalf? Now, it's true that a person could say, you know, I'm speaking on God's behalf and not be. That's true. But if they're going to say, I'm telling you something that God told me, you're at least going to have to consider the claim. And the, apocry the, the, uh, the apocryphal books don't make that claim. The, several of the biblical books do, either explicitly or definitely all implicitly. In terms, in terms of the New Testament, um, oh, keep in mind too, with regard to the Old Testament, since the Old Testament, what we call the 39 books, were pretty much locked down and Jesus quoted from them as a, um, a set, nobody really debates that as to why those 39 were included. Any debates that you will see in the history of the church or even up till today, all and only exclusively revolve around New Testament books. Because the canon of the Old Testament had been settled and Jesus quotes from it and uses it and reads it extensively. So how then do we know which New Testament books were affirmed or why? They had to bear apostolic authority. So they were either written by an apostle who was given the ability to bind the church to truth, the early church, or by someone who was a close associate of the apostles who, who was allowed to function in the capacity of an apostle. Like, for instance, Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts. Not one of the twelve, but an apostolic associate. A third thing is obviously you look for coherence of doctrinal orthodoxy. So if there's a book that's teaching something that is contrary to another, those were weeded through. Um, New Testament authors cross-reference and support each other either on the level of the author or on the level of the content. And then, uh, now this might seem like a weak argument at first, but you've got to think about this a little bit. They, they were preserved by the early church. Now, did the early church preserve books that weren't God's word? Yes, the Apocrypha, but for different purposes. The fact that they took Ephesians and said, you know what, we better start making copies of this and passing it around. This is important. We also have thousands of what are known as lectionaries, which are, are ancient sermons. And we can see what the early Christian church was preaching from. They were preaching from books like Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians. So these early preachers saw, being much closer to the events, apostolic authority, divine truth, and a general affirmation from the people of God that these were viewed as uh, foundational books. I'll read a quote to you from uh, a book called Introduction to Biblical Interpretation by Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard. 
Quote, the authoritative church pronouncements of the 4th and 5th centuries, so it, it took several hundred years for the church to even feel it was necessary to lock it down because they just sort of knew they were using them, but then they started to realize there's some heretics running around, so they got to sort of lock it down. So this is what he's referring to. The authoritative church pronouncements of the 4th and 5th centuries cannot ultimately determine the canon. Fast forward. We must say that the canon theoretically, he, they put that in, in bold, remains open if some additional document could meet all criteria for canonicity. But practically, they put that in bold, the canon is closed since a work that has not been used for nearly 20 centuries cannot meet the criterion of what's known as Catholicity, which means universal use by the church. So the evidence, I'll use an example. Paul wrote two letters that are in our New Testament to the church of Corinth. Very difficult circumstances for the church of Corinth. They were in an extremely secular, hedonistic city. We've labeled them 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But even in 1 Corinthians, he talks about other letters he wrote to them earlier. If you actually study those references and you study the dating, the suggested dates of 1 and 2 Corinthians, it, there's evidence some have suggested that he may have written up to five plus letters to the church of Corinth. Same guy, same church. So theoretically, if we dug up what we, what we would call 3 Corinthians, theoretically what the authors are saying uh, and they, they met all these criteria, and you could add it to your Bible. But practically, the big problem is, why would God inspire something that goes missing for 2,000 years? So on a practical level, the canon must be closed. That's the, that's the argument. Let's talk then about versions. The number of Bible translations, or we also know them, know them as versions, has reached an all-time high in recent times. But as I mentioned to you earlier, translation took place even prior to the time of Christ in the form of the Septuagint. And we still have that. The um, preservation of the text, we've touched on that. The first guy to do a major translation of the whole Bible, this board's getting a little full, but we're almost to the end tonight, so, um, was Jerome. Okay, Jerome, significant figure in the early early church, the first few centuries. He's called an early church father. Jerome did the first translation of the whole Bible when he um, revised or translated the Bible into Latin in and around the fourth century A.D. Now. When he translated the Bible into Latin, this became known as the Common Bible, or in Latin Anglicized, the Vulgate. I'll spell that out for you. So he tra translates what's known as the Vulgate, which, I don't know Latin, but apparently comes from the word, or is, is the equivalent of the word common. Now this Bible was so popular that it was considered the official translation of the Bible for the Roman Catholic Church from the 4th century up to the middle of the 20th century. Jack, was it you that told me you used to go to Mass in Latin? Yep. 
Okay, well, chances are you are hearing the Latin Vulgate read, translated by Jerome in the 4th century. Now, um, Catholic masses over the course of time eventually were done in Latin, so you didn't have to have a trained priesthood. You didn't even have to have a literate priesthood. They just had to memorize the mass. Um, so there's times even like in the in the uh, centuries sometimes in the, um, uh, what's the name of it? Um, I was going to say the dark era, the dark ages, when you have priests being born, trained, dying, born, trained, dying, born tra- in parish churches that, that were illiterate. But you didn't have to come up with your own sermon. You, you memorized the Latin mass and you... You just recited it. You know, it's kind of robotic, and the people, the common people, didn't have access to the Latin Vulgate during that period of time. In fact, if you had one, you you'd be put to death because they were very concerned about heresy. So, you, generations of Christians born, go to church, die; born, go to church, die; born, go to church, die. Gen- never, never cracked the Bible, never seen one, couldn't write one, and had no idea about a single word of what was said in church. And you get upset with me if I'm a tad bit confusing at times. <laughs> you got it pretty good. So how did the church get around this? They put the gospel in stained glass. So you'd come in and you'd see it. This is why they developed these beautiful cathedrals, because you'd visually see the gospel and experience the holiness of God. But you had no idea. There was no oral dimension to it. It was all visual. So um, this goes on for a long time. Now, the Latin Vulgate was so good that it was used uh, as the basis for many early English Bibles because they didn't have like access to a lot of Greek or Hebrew uh, scrolls. There's stories of uh, men even coming into the coming up close to the time of the Reformation that we're trying to translate early copies or early English translations. And they're like, well, let's just say, for example, we don't have Romans in Greek. We only have it in Latin. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to take the Latin, translate it into Greek, and then translate the Greek into English. <laughs> well, now you get like a translation of a translation of a translation, right? Because they didn't have it. There was no internet. I mean, think about it. You're like in some monastery in Germany. Where do you find like Greek and Latin uh, or Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. And if there's one over in Switzerland, how do you get it? Who's going to give it to you? And in today's dollars, it could be worth tens of thousands of dollars, especially before the Gutenberg Press was developed and you could print them. Who's going to give you a handwritten manuscript that someone had spent months and months and months being paid to translate, right? So you can understand the circumstances are very different. But other translations that benefited from it, uh, in and around 1384... Wycliffe's Bible was translated. You might have heard of like Wycliffe Bible translators. This is named after a guy that lived 700 years ago that translated a Bible into English. When I say English, I mean, it wouldn't be an English we'd be able to read. Uh, It would be a very different kind. The Great Bible, that's like the best name ever. I'm going to make a translation called the Great Bible, never to be rivaled. This was 1539. The Geneva Bible, because it was translated in Geneva, 1560, and the first copies of the King James Bible in 1611. Uh, Some of them did rely upon some versions of uh, Greek and Hebrew, but um, they typically followed the the translation procedures that they saw in Jerome. 
So then we have later versions. Uh, the um, Peg, you don't need to write all these down. Pagninius's Latin Bible, 1528. Tyndale translated the, the Septuagint and the New Testament between 1526 and 1530. So this is all like in the throes of the Protestant Reformation. But a lot of these versions, like if you could read those old, that old English today, like there'd be a lot of mistakes, like a lot of mistakes. But again, that's what they, that's what they had. Talked a little bit about lectionaries during the early centuries of the church, select portions of the gospels, acts, the epistles were often recorded in church manuals. And these were read aloud in churches throughout the year, often for liturgical purposes. So we're, we're not really familiar with this. Maybe some of you grew up in like an Anglican church, perhaps, where there's the common book of prayer, certain things that are read or repeated, or in a Catholic church where there's, um, I mean, I went to a Catholic school, but it's been a while. Um, there's like assigned readings, not so much assigned sermons, but you're sort of supposed to preach in the same kind of thing. They had those in the, in the ancient church. So these were, these were read throughout the churches for liturgical purposes. So at last count, we have 2,200 of these lectionaries that have been identified and, identified and cataloged just from the 4th to the 12th century. And in these lectionaries, they're often quoting from the Gospels or Acts in Greek. So what does that do? Oh, okay, they're, they're quoting in Greek. So that tells us, okay, what did the Greek Bible in their day and age look like? So that we can compare it to the ancient copies. Oh, okay, they were using the Alexandrian text or Byzantine text or whatnot. There's a whole science to this. So textual criticism then is the tedious work I mentioned to you earlier uh, and we'll just end with this because I see we're out of time. It's the tedious scientific work of comparing biblical manuscripts for accuracy. So keep in mind, early Bibles, right up to the Gutenberg Press, written by hand, you can expect there's going to be some typos that appear that are transmitted to future manuscripts. Um, one, less than 1% of the New Testament and 10% of the Old Testament has been subject to textual criticism. And none of it affects Christian doctrine, but you notice more errors are debated in the Hebrew Bible than in the Greek Bible. Older versions of the Bible, limited access to manuscripts. The King James translated largely from a Greek and Hebrew Bible called the Texas Receptus. And that's now antiquated, but you will actually hear KJV only, as we call them advocates today, still try to argue for the superiority of the Texas Receptus. Now, here's what they do. This is how bad it's gotten. Uh, bad is my value word, but I think it's bad. The, the, basically, the manuscripts, the, the, cluster, the handfuls of manuscripts that, not King James, you didn't know how to translate it all, that King James's scholars used to translate from were collectively known as the Texas Receptus. Okay? Now we don't really use the Texas Receptus anymore. We use more of the Alexandrian texts and, and whatnot, because they're older. But a lot of King James only guys will argue that God showed up in that era and and actually re-inspired the Bible in the form of the Texas Receptus. This is called secondary inspiration. So they would argue that the Texas Receptus was inspired by God as a collection, just like Paul was inspired to write Romans. So even if 
we found the original Romans with Paul's seal on it, that would be inferior to the Greek copy of Romans that is found within the collection of the Texas Receptus. Now, this is just, someone just pulled this out of the air because they, they, there's a sentimentality to faith. And if you hear the word of God read in a certain language for long enough and it's, your guy's reading it to you, pounding the pulpit and spitting and hollering, you're being convicted and saved and everything else, it starts to sound like I, when I was a kid, I thought Jesus spoke Old English. And because um, that's how it's read to you. Uh, so this is where it flows from. I think it's more of like a, uh, an argument based on sentiment, but they actually would argue for a secondary inspiration of the King James. Now, again, I don't want you to go home thinking the King James Bible is a bad version. It's not. Some of you have it here today. You should read it. You should study it. It's, it's very good. But don't argue that it's better. Um, another quick point I'll make is when Christians find out that some of our modern Bible translations were translated by teams of scholars, some of whom aren't born again, they're like, well, I don't want to read it then. Well, the King James Bible was translated by people who probably were our considerations. We wouldn't consider them born again either. They were Christian, but... Even secular history books, I can refer you to one. It's called The History of Western Civilization by McKay, Hill, and Buckler. This is a secular book. The secular Western history textbook argues that King James was a homosexual king, that he had young men dance erotically for him in his court, that he was power-hungry, that he wanted to firmly break away, he's the king of England, from Rome, and that's why he commissioned the King James Bible, because in that day, religion and state are like this, right? So if he's going to break from Rome, he has to sort of establish his own brand of Christianity. So he commissions the scholars to write, to, to translate the Bible into the English of his day, which was subsequently updated several times to the new King James. The King James you have today is not the original. It's been gone through several edits. So that he could solidify his, his rule, and he ultimately did. He succeeded. Now, uh, even though he was devilish in his motivations, surprise, surprise, he was used of by God because he delivered the word of God to the English people, and evangelicalism came out of that. So thank God for the homosexual king. But... <laughs> Very rarely will you hear me say something like that. But um, it proves the point that God can use people who are not born again to bring about his purposes. And I have, abs- I have absolutely no issue with reading or preaching from a translation of the Bible. If the guy's got three PhDs in Koine Greek, but he's an atheist, I don't care. I mean, I'd like him to be born again. But he could hypothetically come up with a far better translation than a guy who's really well and motivated, but he's got a bachelor's degree in Greek. Now, that's not to say that the majority or most or all of men that are commissioned to do this today are not born again, but it's just a moot point for me. I don't care what their faith background is. If they're scholars in the, in the language, I'm prepared to utilize the results because they can be used for kingdom purposes. Okay? Keep in mind that the people that punched out the... Uh, the plastic form tables that you're sitting at today probably weren't born again, but these tables are, have been used tonight for redemptive purposes as well. Okay, So go in peace. We'll see you next Tuesday night.